Will you knit your hearts together with me uh, briefly in prayer and let us ask God that he will illumine us. Almighty Heavenly Father, we plead with you uh, that you indeed would grant us that posture without which no one can understand your truth, especially from your Holy Scripture, namely that we might have reverence and humility before it. Illumine our hearts, we do pray, in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen. Athens, especially the Acropolis, it's almost ineffable in trying to describe it, Uh, to walk in the vicinity of the Acropolis, to gaze upon her heights at night, which are lit up every evening, is almost beyond description, a sight to behold indeed. I want to, to meditate on a few things with me tonight from this passage in the way of questions that I think may be repeated in your bulletin. And that is first to say, what would Paul have seen in Athens in this most historic moment when God called him to preach the word uh, at this center of Grecan Roman culture to rehearse some of the history of Athens, that most famous of Western cities may benefit us to understand the milieu and the context into which Paul was driven to preach the gospel. This was a city with a long, long history and a noble pedigree of ideas. In the city at one time, it wasn't there when Paul was there, um, there stood a statue, a very, very large statue, a bronze statue dedicated to Athena Promachos, Athena the Defender, It was meant to celebrate the victory against the Persians in 465 B.C. And there it was completed in 458, sometime between 458 and 455. It was tall. We know from an author who lived to see it that he wrote that uh, merchants coming in by the way of sea could see it for miles and miles away, her gold-plated helmet and the tip of her Uh, spear as it shone out towards the ocean. Athena, defender of Athens, the personification of wisdom, for it was Athena, that goddess who uh, guarded uh, uh, um, Achilles in the Iliad and actually stopped him from his rampage of violence and killing. It was Athena who guided Odysseus back home to uh, his loving spouse through many journeys. It is this place that was dedicated to Athena Promachos. What else would uh, Paul have seen or at least been exposed to? He would have been exposed to a unified place. What do I mean by that? Well, as he came, he would have seen statuary almost unrivaled throughout the world, marble, terracotta, um, and you can all picture in your mind's eye the beautiful Acropolis with all its symmetry and all its imagery and all its iconography. This was all meant to be pulled together in a kind of religious unity to promote a very religious idea. And there, when one originally would have gone through the Acropolis, he would have read a pediment at the top of the Acropolis where Heracles is being led before Zeus and Hera, 
And, and the pediment would have said something that had reverberations in its wake for centuries, millennia, actually, uh, in Western civilization. Namely, that a man or a woman is immortalized by the works that they do in this life. A man or woman is immortalized by the works that they do in this life. So it was unified not only by that idea, and everything in Western civilization became a footnote of that. It was also unified in its religiosity. All kinds of votive offerings were discovered there by archaeologists when they got in there. Um, some in marble, but you had to be pretty rich to have a statue in marble. So a lot in terracotta figurines that were found everywhere. In fact, in the first century AD, there was a writer named Petronius who said, and summed it up well, is easier to find a god in Athens than it is a human being. So multiplied were the gods and the idols. During the Hellenistic period, the gold was removed from most of the statuary and taken off we don't know where. Um, and then it became a kind of university town uh, where all kinds of ideas were exchanged much like Madison, Wisconsin. In 86 BC, a Roman general, Sulla, sacked it. And then in 31 BC, Octavian defeats Mark Antony and Cleopatra, and Athens now becomes a Roman provincial capital. In 27 BC, the Roman emperor, Octavius, begins to build a little temple off to the northeast corner of the Acropolis. And it's de dedicated to the greatness of Rome. Now, why do I share that with you? Because this is shortly before Paul came. And now all the greatness that was Athens, all the greatness from centuries that affected all of Western culture <laughs> for so many centuries, now Rome politicizes. Now you have a mix of power politics together with the greatest achievements of common grace outside of God. Power politics, mixed with religiosity, and cultural achievements almost unmatched through the entire centuries. It would be like taking a Harvard or a Madison, Wisconsin, and plopping it down right in the middle of power politics. The Harvard or the Sorbonne or the University of Chicago in the middle of D.C. with all its statuary. Uh, here, you have both realms mixed as you look down the street together with a tier one university. How interesting the conflation of power politics with prestigious ideas and religiosity. That's what the Apostle Paul stepped into. And then the next question I want you to uh, think about is, where was it that the Apostle Paul spoke publicly? Well, he spoke the gospel wherever he went. In the marketplace, the Agora, in the synagogue, and then at the Areopagus. We're not sure exactly what the Areopagus was. Is it a mere topographical place? Uh, yes, it is that, and we know where it is, on the side of the Acropolis. But also, what was it? What was conducted there? It was also very political. At one time, it was a judicial court where they tried murderers. And of course, it was the exchange, a place of exchange of ideas, and even the the supervising of morals and education. 
So there on the Areopagus, that's where Paul went to preach this famous sermon. A political place, but also a very religious place. What did Paul say when he did this? And to whom did he say it? And how did he say what he said? Well, taking up the last question first, notice from the text the studied courteousness, politeness with which he addresses his audience. Paul is not bombastic. Paul is not arrogant. He exercises great discipline in trying to show respect for the people with whom he disagrees. And he's trying to win over to our most holy faith. But to whom did he say it? Well, as was read, the Epicureans were at least there, these well-known atheistic materialists for whom pleasure was the chief end in life. Eat, drink, be merry, have all the fun you can, because tomorrow you die. And then there were the Stoics, that school of lofty and severe pantheists, who taught that the universe was under the law, iron law of necessity, and you better have an iron jaw set to that iron law of necessity, because when the slings and darts of an outrageous fortune come your way, to quote a later poet, you better not wear your emotions on your sleeve, but rather be stiff. Don't show it. That's what Paul walked into. Think about it. Power politics, Rome, subsuming all those glorious ideas and art and statuary to her own imperium and power, together with these great, great artistic works and lofty ideas stretching all the way back to Periclean Athens. That's the atmosphere into which Paul went. That's the atmosphere into which he preached. And what did God want to say in such an atmosphere? What did God want his ministers to preach? What did God want the church by way of extension to do in that context? Now I invite you to look at your Bibles and notice what Paul preaches. Verses 18 and 19 say, Jesus and the resurrection. But it wasn't just Jesus and the resurrection. If you look farther down under verse 24 and following, you'll see a whole panoply of ideas that that the apostle marshes forward, a, a many systematic theology, if you will. Notice what he says in verse 24 and following. First of all, he uses the unknown God statue for his platform as a segue to preach the gospel. And there he launches into his little mini-theology, if you will. In verse 24, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temple made by hands. Now, what doctrine is that? Well, that's the doctrine of creation, people. And then look what he goes on to uh, talk about in verse 25. He, that is God, is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. There's the doctrine of the self-existence of God, the self-origination of God. You ministers know the aseity of God. That God is not influenced or, or contained or manipulated by the wills of men. He stands in existence above and beyond creation 
ruling an almighty august power. And then look what he goes on to say, verse 26. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined times set for them in the exact places where they should live. Now, there's the doctrine of God's providence. There's the doctrine of God's sovereign rule over the affairs of human beings. Or that he decrees whatsoever comes to pass. Here, Paul sets this before them in verse 26. And then look at 27 and 28. He goes on. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Now, what doctrine is that? That's the doctrine of the presence of God, or the omnipresence of God, the imminence of God. Paul's letting them know that the problem isn't their distance from God, or God's, as they allegedly believed. Their problem is that they, they are not drawing near to the God who is present in their midst. And then in verse 28, notice what he does. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Do you see what Paul does? He's not afraid of common grace. He's not afraid of secular culture. <laughs> As God so often does, he, he, he subsumes and turns on its head secular learning for his own purposes. Quoting either Aratus or Cleanthes, uh, these pagan poets. We know not who. One of them, though. And there he turns it to his advantage says, we are his offspring. And then he goes on and he says, therefore, since we are his offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. Imagine the Acropolis in your mind's eye. Paul must have been doing this as he's preaching. In these beautiful iconographic and artistic works and all the marble that still resided up to that day, even though the gold had been snatched away. And there he is. No, the divinity is not like gold, silver, or stone. An image made by God's design and skill. Okay? In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, verse 30. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now come the hammer blows. As, as Paul's building towards the crescendo. And, uh, and he's building, building, building. And now he's... He's grasping at the people and say, this is the God you should believe in, the one true God. And then notice verse 29 as he goes on. God overlooks such ignorance, he says in verse 30, 31. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Symbol clashes. The free offer of the gospel, full and free. There it is. If you would just repent and believe, because there is a judgment day coming if you do not, as our confession says in 33.2. On that day, it will be an act of mercy for those who are elect and are in Christ. Elegant semicolon. For those who are outside of Christ, it will be a day of judgment. And here Paul is just hammering home the gospel. And notice, we say in verse 31 um, and following, he gives the gospel, he calls them to repentance. 
This is not mere abstract philosophizing for these overly intellectually. If you look at the original, it talks about they're like henpeckers. Every little food that comes along, every scrap of new intellectual information they want to grab. Paul says, no, this is God's word, and it has covenantal teeth to it. And as Isaiah says, the rain falls, the farmer sows the seed, and it does not return to him void. And this is what Paul is moved to do at this historic moment in the context of vast power politics and the highest levels of culture and education meshed into one spot. Joseph, (laughs) Nate, wherever you are, there you are. What does God want you to do? In Madison, there's so much like this. Preach the gospel. Is that not enough, the most noble calling there is? To preach the gospel in all its glory, in all its fullness. Jesus and the resurrection, but every bit of theology that builds up to Jesus and the resurrection. And not only the officers, but the church. What does God want you to do in Madison and the surrounding environs in this place that is so much like this occasion? To preach the gospel. To share with people that there's true liberty from guilt and from the condemnation of the law. If you would just repent and believe, and it comes through the human divine mediator, Jesus Christ. Now, why did Paul say it? Next question, because he was moved in his spirit. He believed in the truth of what had been revealed to him on the road to Damascus. Three years in the wilderness, out in Petra probably. (laughs) And being caught up in the third heaven, whatever that was. He was so utterly convinced of the gospel. But why did Paul say it? Merely for those so-called intellectual elites that were there? No. There were others in the audience. Mothers, fathers businessmen, perhaps politicians, people who had spouses, people who had children. There's nothing more frightening to think that you might have set a bad example for a little one in your life. There's nothing more frightening to look back on your life, especially when you get hoary-headed, and think, what a waste. Don't you think people in the audience had experienced that? despite their philosophies, despite their intellectual sophistication. And Paul says, sweet liberty comes in the gospel. And if these things haunt you at night, this is where freedom is found. It's not found by the works that you do in this life that allegedly others, mere mortals, remember that give you immortality. It's the work of one, an alien righteousness, not found inside ourselves, but outside of ourselves, by a perfect probation keeper and penalty payer, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what seized Paul's whole life, whole heart, whole mind. 
And what was the effect of what Paul had to say? Well, you heard for yourself. The bulletin only says through 33. It's probably my mistake, but we read 34. People believed. Two names are immortalized in Holy Scripture that they believed. And then some indefinite number other. For some of you, I may have been perfectly clear. What's the point? For others, perhaps less so. Although I judge by your faces, God has moved and made it clear. Your job, men, and your job as a corporate church and churches in the years to come is to stick to your job description. Don't get distracted by gimmicks, by another job description. Your job description is very narrow. And that is to preach the gospel and administer the sacraments. There's a great Southern Presbyterian theologian that put it like this. The church not only should not, but also need not, attempt to reform society for the advancement of the gospel because the church prescribed by Christ is sufficient, irrespective of outside social structures, and provides the best means available for the spiritual task that God has given to it. Dr. Chinshi Yu gives his greetings to those of you who remember Fu. He was converted here, as I'm sure you remember. Baptized here. I, he's one of my students now. I did not know, but because I had some fur baby sitting problems, I had to send a SOS out to the students. So I was coming here. And he says, you're going to Madison? That's where I was converted. That's where I was baptized. He was working on a PhD here at the university. And he got saved because of the faithful gospel preaching of this church. And then he went to Santa Barbara and finished. And now he's at Westminster in California getting an MDiv to become a lawfully ordained minister and minister of the sacraments. Praise God. The tools that we have are powerful unto salvation. They can slay our sins and they can slay our souls for God's glory. People of God, newly ordained ministers almost, Nate and Joseph, the gospel and the ministry of the word and sacraments are God's sufficient means for you to perform the work of the corporate church in Madison, Wisconsin. Have courage in discharging this duty. Stick to your job description. There is no more noble calling and vocation in all the earth, namely to be ambassadors of the Lord Jesus Christ in this religious, politically charged environment in Madison, Wisconsin.